there is great joy to doing creative work, even if the only person you're doing it for is yourself. And the fact that you're doing it for yourself on a regular basis, paradoxically, is much more likely to lead to an audience of millions. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast, where we delve into the stories of successful entrepreneurs so you can discover what's possible. Today's guest is Srini Rao. This episode is brought to you by blogsetupservices.com, which is exactly what it sounds like, a service to set up your blog for you. So if you've struggled with the technical aspects of launching a blog business, including installing WordPress, getting your hosting account up and running, getting your domain name, working with that hosting account, and getting a nice design up and running for your blog, this is the service for you. It's for all you non-techies out there. So once you sign up for your very own blog setup services package, Carrie is going to become your blog mechanic. She will provide this installation and support service for you, which includes installing your blog and helping you with all aspects of setting up your domain name and your hosting account. She's also going to offer you to choose from a selection of premium themes provided by Studio Press, and you can choose which one of these you like the most. They're normally going to cost you $99.95, but they're included for free as part of the blog setup services package. So once your blog is set up and you've got that nice premium theme, Carrie's also going to install six must-have plugins so that you've got things like protection from spam, protection from hackers, you've got something to help with the, the loading time, to speed up the loading time of your blog, and a bunch of other things that are very common but important like spell checks and web forms so people can easily contact you through your blog. We're also going to throw in a second bonus. This is from me. If you choose to sign up for the blog setup services package, you also get access to my blog tech 101 guide which is huge it's 128 pages that i put together specifically for my members to help with everything to do with blog technology so you've got all kinds of information there not just blog setup but you've got things like how to collect emails from people how to set up product delivery sections on your blog how to create membership sites all the technical aspects of blogging are covered in there but carrie will do all the basic installation for you. So you've got both here. You've got the knowledge on what you need to do with tech, but Carrie's going to do the basic setup for you, all part of this package. So you're probably wondering, how much does this actually cost? Well, it's a one-time fee of just $99 for your blog to be completely set up with a nice custom premium theme, your domain name, your hosting, and those six must-have plugins, plus my free guide on the technical aspect of running a blog business. So you get all of that for $99. $99. Just go to blogsetupservices.com to find out more and to order your blog setup package and you can turn your idea into a fully functioning website in under three days. Hi, this is Yaro. Thank you for joining me today on a podcast that I guess has been long in the making. So my guest today has been, well, first of all, a person who took a coaching program over a decade ago now, or just about a decade ago now, and went on to launch a very successful podcast. Now, I'm not going to take any credit for that, but I think it's an interesting story to share the connection between taking a blogging course to then become a podcaster. So that's a little bit of a step to the left. So I'm curious about hearing that. But that podcast went on to become one of the most successful podcasts in the world of creativity. And it's known as you probably have heard of it, the Unmistakable Creative Podcast hosted by Srini Rao. So Srini, thank you for joining me today. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really kind of serendipitous and cool to get to talk to you after a decade of <laughs> decade ago taking that course. Yeah, I was interesting. I think to do an interview when time has passed, because then you really can see what people do or don't do <laughs> with uh, yeah, what yeah, they yeah, learn. And and you obviously, actually, you're probably the only person I can think of who went not with blogging and not with you know launching a course or you probably have over the years but yeah your, your initial platform you decided to build was podcasting and you've also gone on to i think you just said two self-published and two traditional published books as a result of the podcast right because that yeah sort of launched your fame and i know like that 10 years period of time i haven't seen you really talk about anything else i know that's this is your thing it's it's paid for your living for your entire life over the last decade i think i've seen you're a speaker around this subject as well so everything's kind of been born from this podcast is that correct yeah that is correct i think the the funny thing is that the podcast uh, was actually born from blogging so obviously as you said the the course was a course about uh, how to build a blog and I, I think that this is something i've shared over and over is that you should never follow anybody's instructions to the letter because otherwise what ends up happening is you can only recreate their outcomes as opposed to outcomes that you might have not otherwise ended up at. So I guess let me provide some context. So mm -hmm. I signed up for your course because I just graduated from business school. It was April 2009, which is a horrible time to get out of school. Nobody was hiring for jobs. And I started to quickly realize that my resume was going to be effectively completely worthless because a resume is basically a bunch of shit you say you think you know how to do but there's no tangible evidence of it. And I had worked as a social media intern at Intuit the summer before, and I was trying to find a job doing social media marketing, but I had no tangible evidence of my skills. And so I actually convinced my dad to lend me the $500 to take your course. And he didn't even give me the $500 all at once. I actually signed up for your course on a payment plan, mm. which ended up being a blessing in disguise because I remember because of the fact that I was on a payment plan, the course was structured differently for people who are on the payment plan. I only got one lesson every week. And that ended up being, in all honesty, a blessing in disguise because I never looked at the lesson and thought, okay, I can't do this or I don't have time because I had a whole week to complete each lesson. And none of the lessons really took more than an hour a day. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, so the difference between people who get a result and people who don't is this being one of them, taking mm. action on the thing that they're supposed to take action on. And I've seen this pattern over and over again, even in the people who are exposed to my work. So I started the course. I started building a personal development blog called The School of Life. And I was writing every day. I was writing two or three times a week. This is back when commenting on blogs was a way to get to know other bloggers. So I was doing that. I was writing guest posts. I made a lot of mistakes along the way, though. I did a lot of things wrong, many of which I regret now, one of which, the big one being, I did not focus on building my email list because mm -hmm. I never realized just how powerful of an asset that was until a couple of years later, when many, many, many years later, where I started to see that, okay, if I'm ever going to do a book, this is going to be a big driver of book sales or anything mm -hmm. else that I want to sell, particularly. But what happened was, if I remember correctly, there were maybe 26 lessons in the course, and one of those lessons was to interview somebody as a way to get traffic to the blog. And so I actually interviewed another one of your students, a guy named Josh Hanagarni, who had a blog called The World's Strongest Librarian. I remember putting a post in the blog mastermind forum and I said, hey, I'm on lesson number 13. I'm wondering if there's somebody that I can interview. And this guy, Josh, replied back. And Josh had a really interesting story. He was a kettlebell weightlifter who also happened to be a librarian who had Tourette's syndrome. <laughs> oh, wow. And okay. 
didn't know this. He actually ended up, Seth Godin discovered his blog two or three months after he started. And Seth, I think there's a book here. Funny enough, when I walked into my literary agent's office for the first time, almost seven or eight years later, the first book I saw on her shelf was Josh's book. And I said, this is really weird. And sir, <laughs> never believe this, but wow. Josh was the first person that I ever interviewed. And Josh, from that point forward, referred me to another woman named Kelly Deals. And so Josh said something to me in that first interview. He said, don't underestimate what this is going to do for you. I don't know why he said it. I don't know that I possessed any particular talent in that moment for interviewing. But rather than just do one interview and do that lesson as a way to get traffic to your blog, I actually started a weekly interview series called Interviews with Up-and-Coming Bloggers. So every week I would interview a blogger. I would post it with an MP3. It wasn't the sophistication of, of a podcast or anything. I literally just uploaded an MP3 file to my WordPress blog, wrote some bullet points, and sent it to people. And I started getting feedback. So Josh referred me to one girl. She referred me to another. And I think probably by about maybe 13 or 14 interviews in, this was sometime in either December of 2009 or, or January of 2010, I had emailed this guy, Sid Zavara, who I had, who had been one of the people that I interviewed. And I said, hey, I have decided to start a multi-author blog with other new bloggers because we think that by combining forces, we could actually build a much bigger property. And Sid replied back saying that it was a terrible idea and that he didn't have time to contribute. But instead, he sent me this lengthy email, which is actually in my first book, about why he thought that I should, instead of doing that, start a podcast and take the interviews and spin it out into a separate site. Because he mm -hmm. said, your personal development writing is great, but I think what sets you apart is your interviews. So that ended up becoming a podcast for bloggers called Blogcast FM. Oh, yes. And you were a guest on the show as mm -hmm. well. And then I think probably around 300 interviews. And keep in mind, at this time, nobody was doing podcasts. Everybody basically said that podcasts were dead, which is hilarious considering the world we live in now and the fact that podcasts are pretty much all the rage. I, I knew that we have arrived at a very strange moment in popular culture with podcasts. When I was playing a video game the other day, I'm a weirdo who plays sports video games, but I don't watch sports and I could care less about sports. <laughs> okay. So I, I play NBA basketball and we were playing NBA 2K18 and one of the commentators on NBA 2K18 was a basketball player named Chris Webber. And Chris Weber was talking about all the people that he had interviewed for his podcast in the middle of this video game. And we were like, wait a minute, Chris Weber is plugging his podcast in a video game? What the hell? <laughs> Meta. Yeah. Before you continue this, I'm, I'm loving it. And I Blogcast FM is a great point where I have to ask this question, though, because sure. the timestamp for that, that was what, 2010? Is that? Yeah, it was 2010. So. If I remember correctly, because I started my podcast in 2005 and there was a tiny wave then of podcasting uh -huh. because the iPod came out and iTunes came out. So that was phase one and then it disappeared. It sort of didn't get that big traction. And I think uh, 2010 was about the time when the second wave, the big wave, when a lot of people in our industry, the, you know, the Lewis Howes, the Pat Flynn's, the uh -huh. so and so ones rode that podcasting wave to super fame. Yeah. And I'm, I know your broadcast event was kind of just hitting that too. But before we talk about that, I just have to ask one question. <laughs> sure. Before all of this, before you took my course, you were in university. And even before that, was there anything entrepreneurial in your life? Like, was this all this blogging and podcasting? Was that the first time you attempted to become an entrepreneur? 
No, no. So there were other entrepreneurial endeavors, but I think the, so I'll, I'll tell you two sort of relevant stories okay. from this. The first is that my natural instinct, anytime I saw a new piece of technology was to ask myself, what could I make using this? Now, keep in mind, I went to business, I went to undergrad at Berkeley while the first dot-com boom was going on. And at that time, it took, you know, months on end and thousands of dollars to do something as simple as build a website. We didn't have the tools that we have today, or even in 2009, by the time I took your course. And so, so my initial sort of endeavors were really laughable. I made this parody of a Bollywood music video with an old roommate <laughs> that is still on YouTube to this day. If you search Srini and Roshni, go to Tasty Curry, you can find it. It's absolutely ridiculous. You could never trace a straight line. You couldn't draw a line from that to what I'm doing today. I also did this summer newsletter that one of my friends hosted. It was a blog before there were blogs. He basically would have his email in these stories about our summers, and I would write one every day because I was working at a job that I hated. So one thing that is relevant here is I didn't talk about this until 2013, but I've been fired from almost every real job I ever had, which was a sign that perhaps maybe me and a real job are not meant to be. But there were really silly sort of entrepreneurial instincts when I was young. So I lived in a small Texas town called uh, Bryan College Station, and they had opened up Sam's Club in our town, which is basically Walmart's equivalent of Costco or one of those warehouse style stores. And my dad wanted to go check it out. And we went there. This was when I was in eighth grade. And we were walking through the candy aisle and there were these sour gumballs called crybabies. And I told my dad, I said, tell you what, I said, that box costs $7. Buy it to me and I'll come back with a bag full of money tomorrow from school. <laughs> he was like, all right, you know what? $7, no big deal. And so I decided to, to see whether there was a market. So what I did was I took a brown paper bag full of all of these sour gumballs. Wait, how old were you again? I was in eighth grade. So you're like 12, 13? 13, 14 yeah. probably. Yeah. And I took half of the bag to school. And by lunchtime, I had sold half of the bag. I had all the popular girls who never talked to me were coming up to me at the lunch table and saying, hey, do you have any more of them? And so I said, no, but I'm taking orders for tomorrow. So <laughs> I started taking orders. And then I went back because the, the gumballs cost, I think there were 250 of them in the box that you got. And I sold them for 10 cents each and the box cost $7. So I made $18 profit on each box. And so I went back. And to this day, I think I made a mistake because I underpriced the product. I should have charged 25 cents and nobody would have questioned it, but that was a mistake on my part. It's so funny how selling candy to kids sounds like being a drug dealer, or at least the, really the, the gateway to being a drug dealer. Oh, <laughs> it really does seem like the gateway to being a drug dealer in a lot of ways. And so anyways, we went back to, I told my dad, I came home from school that day. We went back. I told my dad, I said, we got to go back to Sam's Club. He's like, what? And I just showed him the Ziploc bag full of money. And I said, I have orders for tomorrow that I have to fulfill. So we need to restock the inventory. So <laughs> wait, we went wait back. A sec. The way you say that sounds so professional. Was your 13 year old self using that, that language? That way, I, all I said was that I, you know, people want more. I have orders for tomorrow. So I need <laughs> okay. more. Okay. So we went back and we got more and I went back to school and I sold that next batch out within a day. And so I came back again, and, and so I, I told my dad, you know, I think we got to go back. And then I think about a week or two later, a couple of my friends realized that I was onto something. And one of my friends who was in a band with me said, look, you're friends with all the smart kids and the geeks. We're, he said, but you need to cover more territory here. And I, I said, all right, what do you have in mind? He said, well, why don't you bring us on? One of our friends played on the golf team, so he said he would cover all the jocks. Another friend was in choir, so he said, I'll cover all the popular people. And so we expanded. And so basically we did that. 
And I think another two weeks went by where you know this thing was running. And eventually what we ended up doing was sometime into this, I got caught by the choir teacher while I was selling candy at like eight o'clock in the morning. She said, what are you doing? She's like, are you selling candy? And I said, yeah. She said, I'll tell you what. And her nephew had been a really good friend of mine when I was in seventh grade. So she said, I'm not going to report you, but she said, you're done. And that was the end of my candy empire. Now, what's funny is there was a kid named Carlos who took over the entire candy empire and he basically took it to a whole other level. He showed up at school with a briefcase. He <laughs> expanded the inventory to include a wide range of candies. And he pretty much, when you're in eighth grade, $150 a week is a lot of money. Yeah. So he pretty much ran it for the entire time he was in eighth grade. And it was hilarious. And yeah. I, I just reconnected with him on Facebook. It was really funny. And he ended up actually becoming an entrepreneur. And he said, yeah, he's like, I've built like 25 houses in this town. <laughs> so yeah, that was the first sort of entrepreneurial instinct. I thought for sure you'd say he's a candy mogul now, you know, his last yeah. name Hershey or something like that. Okay. So I feel like if I kept searching your youth here, we could find quite a few stories like that. In terms of your mindset before, or even I guess the window of graduating high school and then thinking about what's next for my life. Yeah. Were you thinking I'm going to be an entrepreneur or were you thinking I'm going to have a career, a job, or were you clueless and trying to figure it out? No, no, I, I don't think at all I was thinking that I was going to be an entrepreneur. And, and this is a really interesting and relevant question because I think a lot about education and our, our education system and, and the fact that I got a degree from probably one of the most prestigious universities in the United States as well as a graduate degree. No, not at all. I, I actually very much felt that I was headed down a career path. So there are a couple of factors that I think played a role in that mindset. One, of course, is the education system that I was in, but also culturally. I'm Indian of Indian descent and we're raised with very practical mindsets. You know, go do something practical, like become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer or whatever, something that supposedly will guarantee you an income. So my sister is actually a doctor. And I don't think that for me... There are a lot of people who you find in this world and, and we'll, you know, you talked about Pat Flynn and all these people who kind of rode that wave to fame. The funny thing is most of those people are far more well-known than I am. They have much bigger audiences, partially because I think they did things very differently than I did. And, you know, there's a point at which my work stopped being about marketing and online business probably two or three years after Blogcast FM, which we can talk about. Mm. But no, I think that I am very much an accidental entrepreneur. I ended up here because I kind of saw that, okay, wait a minute, I've attempted to find a job. I've spent 10 years working at these careers where I've made no progress. I've been fired from virtually every job I've ever had. This is idiotic. Nobody who is serious about generating a viable result in their life would, would continue down this path because it's, you know, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And I knew that that was kind of the end of it for me. And so, but, but the thing is that I think for me, here's the ultimate irony is I took your course because I wanted to find a way to create a blog that would help me stand out in the job market and get me a day job. And I did oh. get a day job. I did actually have a day job working at an online travel company and the blog did actually play have an impact on me getting that job. And not only that, my main duty at that job was to build a blog for a brand that they okay. were going to it's a full circle. So, yeah, it did actually kind of lead to its intended outcome in that sense. But I didn't realize just how far the ship would sail off course because that job came to an end within a year. That's the last time I ever had a real job where I had to go to an office and be somewhere. And that job was only three days a week is probably why it worked out so so well. But yeah, so that I think is, is kind of to, to answer your question in a very long winded way. Right. OK, so it sounds like raised as a good Indian boy 
thinking I'm going to get a career job, whatever, engineer, doctor, lawyer, something, yeah. goes through the education system, obviously had a few entrepreneurial endeavors, selling candy being one of them along the way. You enter university, you graduate university and you get a degree, but then you start, well, you take my course with the intention of helping get a job from yeah. that, from having a blog. So you get this job. Now, I'm guessing at the point you left that job or whatever happened with the, the travel agency job, is it that the point where you all your experiments you mentioned at the start? I know we're jumping around a bit your timeline here, but all yeah. those experiments with, you know, starting the podcast, interviewing about traffic initially and then changing to Blogcast FM eventually. Is that kind of the time? Have we connected the dots in your timeline? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. So Blogcast FM actually started while I was at that day job. So it was something that I would do, you know, in the mornings before work or, you know, in the afternoons after work. I would just work on it every day for a little bit of time, like an hour or two. And then what happened was I eventually got let go from that job. And 2011, I lived in Costa Rica for about six months. I'm an avid surfer, which is, is kind of relevant because of the fact that my next, my first traditionally published book actually ended up using surfing as a metaphor for, for life and business. So what we ended up doing was I ended up moving back to my parents' house and my dad encouraged me to look for a job during that time. And to appease him, I did. I, I was submitting resumes, but I honestly, I probably interviewed for maybe four or five jobs during between 2011 and 2013. And I was running into this really sort of bizarre catch-22 because the thing that would get me into the door for the job was often the body of work that I had built. But then people would look at it and say, well, this doesn't look like you need a job. It looks like you're going to quit the second and you don't need us, which is <laughs> right. true. That was kind of the long-term plan was that I did not want to have a job that so wasn't you, my intention. You built a portfolio to get a job and the portfolio was all about how you don't want a job. <laughs> I think so. I mean, the portfolio indicated that very long-term that I would leave. And at a certain point, it became very hard to hide that fact that, yes, this is not my long-term plan. It's a stepping stone to getting where I want to go. And that's because all your podcasts and all your blog posts talked about Freedom, creativity, do your uh, own some, thing. To some degree. I mean, I'm sure there were probably things in my blog posts that indicated that this guy would be a bad hire. Not because of his work ethic, but because our where he's headed long term is not aligned with where we want to take this. And you know, I remember the very last job interview I had, you know, this guy said, you know, it seems like, you know, you're gonna leave. And I said, I, I you know what, in all honesty, you're right. I, and I'm not sure there's any point to, you know, continuing this. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's a good scene for a movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I feel like if I went back to a job interview now, I remember one job interview very distinctly, and I never forgot it. And I even wrote about it in my second book, where when I asked about the culture, this old guy says, "Yeah," he said, "You know, we when we say eight o'clock, we mean eight o'clock, not eight fifteen. And I'm thinking to myself, this place sounds like it would be hell. Mm. And I, I really wish that I had had the audacity to say, you know what, like. I was sitting in a room with like five executives from this company and said, and I wanted to tell this guy, I, I really, looking back, I wish I had done this. I said, you know what, Chuck, I think I would fucking hate working with you. So it's been nice meeting all of you. I hope you guys, uh, good luck with your hire. <laughs> and just left. And the funny thing is they ended up firing the VP who was hiring from that position and the guy who got hired for that position got fired three months after he started. Yeah, jobs suck and the, everything's bad about jobs, but let's not go down that tunnel. Yeah, yeah. I am curious though, because obviously you need to live and you don't want to live with your parents as you start getting towards 30, I'm guessing. So. Yeah. Well, well, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, so that's a whole story in and of itself. I lived with my parents far longer than anybody should. <laughs> 
Nice parents. <laughs> yeah, they they really were. I you know I have to give them credit for tolerating that. I was there from almost 2011 till like 2017, on and off. You know, I had periods where I left, but not for long. It was incredibly disheartening. It was frustrating. I wasn't making enough money to get out of there, and that was really stressful. And I think that it's easy to sort of look at people's parade of accomplishments that they showcase on Facebook and assume that that's their whole life based on a window. But I think that what eventually started to happen was I just I started to take it much more seriously and I realized if I wanted to make a living from this I was going to have to have a very different work ethic one that was driven by consistency and schedules and habits and and really getting serious about it and and that was in 2013 a lot of things happened that kind of came together in a way and that was when we rebranded as unmistakable creative that was when the self-published book became a Wall Street Journal bestseller but even after that I was still at my parents house up until 2016 and when I got my book deal I realized it made no sense to leave my parents' house for one reason. At that point, it was no longer that I couldn't afford to take my book deal money and go rent an apartment. But what I realized was that it was the ideal environment to finish a manuscript in because there was nothing else to do there. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, your parents obviously would be supportive of you writing a book, I'm assuming, too. So, Or it sounds like they're just supportive of you in general, which is fantastic. They were. <laughs> yeah, they really were. And yeah. I, I think that for them, it was definitely hard to, you know, to see because there was this question this entire time of where is this going? Is it actually leading somewhere? Even after the self-published you know, book became a Wall Street Journal bestseller, there was still some question as to whether you know this is really long-term viable mm. as a career. I think it wasn't until the Penguin book deal happened that they kind of finally breathed a sigh of relief and thought, okay, you know what, like this is legitimately a career in the making. Okay. So that's kind of like the end of the story, and I, I definitely want to talk about that because that's your your new book. But let's just connect the dots with you know Blogcast FM, it becoming the unmistakable creative podcast. Sure. So. What you launched Blogcast FM, and I remember watching that going, this is actually great timing. You're building one of the first networks, podcast networks, which yeah. was and probably now today is way more common with, you know, your big players having multiple podcasts, sure. uh, you know, almost like media companies. And you were kind of doing that before everyone else came in. And I was watching that thinking, yeah, this could, you know, work really well. But I also thought it's the resources that, you know, uh, yeah. make, making this profitable is, is going to be difficult. I know how hard it is to, to make it that. Yeah. So take us forward. So you launch Blogcast FM, you do a bunch of interviews, you have multiple shows going. So we never had multiple shows. We always had just Blogcast FM with you know various formats, You know, interviews being the primary one. But the thing that was very clear to me was that my gift was not necessarily extracting blogging information out of people. It was the art of the interview itself. What I started to become known for was my ability to conduct incredibly informative, in-depth interviews with a variety of people. And even when we did the Blogcast FM interviews, people always said, these interviews are filled with pure gold, especially if you're a blogger. But what the two things started to happen. As we moved closer and closer to 2013, I was getting exposed to a wide variety of different ideas, as you might imagine, given the nature of the way I built this platform. And more and more, no discredit to, to these people, but I realized I didn't want to be Pat Flynn. I had no interest in building a platform that was all about how to build a blog or how to monetize your art or monetize your, your creative endeavor. I wanted to have conversations with people that I found interesting. And, and the funny thing is that there were people who were listeners of ours who did not have 
blogs or podcasts and didn't care about starting blogs or podcasts. And some of them were my friends, others just found out about us. And, you know, I think after two or 300 interviews, one of the guys interviewed was a guy named Greg Hartle, who ended up being a mentor to me. He had this crazy project called $10 in a laptop, where the goal was to basically visit all 50 states, work one on one with 500 people and start a business in an industry he knew nothing about with the only caveat being that the only three resources that he could use to accomplish that goal were the $10 and the laptop. And so he ended up being one of my interviews. And then sometime in 2013, he had asked me for help on how to write a self-published book. And I knew he'd had a lot of entrepreneurial experience. And I said, fine, I'll help. And then he wanted me to basically work as their director of marketing for a startup that he was an advisor for. And I told him that was a terrible idea because I'd been fired from all my jobs. And he said, well, look, this isn't a job. You're going to be a part owner. You'll get an equity stake. And so I said, all right, fine, I'll do it. But you have to help me figure out how to turn the podcast around. Because like you said, the struggle was, how do you make this profitable. I didn't have an audience as big as Pat Flynn's. We definitely were slower to grow than than he was. We did a lot of things that I think were, you know, wrong in a lot of ways. We made a lot of mistakes, but I think those mistakes actually were, were in some ways beneficial because they they put us to where we're at today. So when Greg came on one thing that became very apparent to him was he said, you know, I think that there's going to need to be a big change here. I think you're going to have to rebrand the show. And part of the impetus for that was that we were watching what was happening around us in the podcast world. You know, you referenced Pat Flynn, Johnny Dumas, I think started around that time. Lewis House. Yeah. yeah. And so what we were seeing was that basically what was going to happen was that everybody and their mother was going to have a podcast where they interviewed entrepreneurs and talked about this kind of stuff. And we realized that we were going to become irrelevant very quickly if we continued down this path. And then, you know, as we looked at the interviews that were really popular, so one thing that I will say, this is really worth noting, when we started Blogcast FM in 2010, I had this idea that I would interview all these really well-known people. They would tweet my interview with their mass millions of followers and every interview would go viral. Of course, that turned out not to be true very quickly. We realized that lesson, I think, within two months. And we realized the people that were going to cause our audience to grow were our listeners because ultimately that is who causes your audience to grow. It's not your guests. I think that the idea that, oh, interviewing famous people is how you grow your podcast is, is nonsense. But the thing is, when we were watching that, we said, you know, we're going to get washed up in a sea of sameness if we, if we continue down this path. And then when we analyzed our most popular interviews, none of them were with people who were bloggers or talked about blogging or talked about building traffic. And my favorite interviews had nothing to do with that. They were interviews with people who we thought were just interesting. And so as a result, we you know did a pretty massive rebrand after the self-published book. We became the unmistakable creative, which it was a shift from being a conversation about blogging and traffic and tactics to being conversations with interesting people about how to live a meaningful life and express your creativity in different ways. So one of our listeners said, if you combine TED Talks and Oprah, you would have unmistakable creative. <laughs> and I think there are two things that really are, are relevant here. My guest choices have never been the uh, result of, of somebody who's famous. I will never make a decision based on how many downloads I think a podcast will get or how prestigious somebody's name is. We've turned down some really well-known people, people that everybody who's listening to this probably would have heard of, mainly because I just didn't feel that they're values aligned with what we wanted to do. And so that took us from being the podcast of bloggers. So two things happened as a result of that. One is that we started to cast a much wider net in terms of the types of people that we could have as guests. Because at the end of the day, we're like, this is not a podcast about blogging, it's about far more. So that happened. It also allowed us to reach a wider audience because 
we looked at it as, well, we don't want to limit ourselves to just entrepreneurs. We want to basically have the tagline of insanely interesting people. doesn't matter from you know what walk of life they come from. So the result of that has been conversations with bank robbers, drug dealers, performance psychologists, authors, entrepreneurs, Elon Musk's ex-wife, you name it. I mean, of course, many, many household names, but also people that you've never heard of, mainly because they have fascinating stories. And so it became... What I saw was that you know I wanted to build something that would encompass a wider group of people, and in the long term, have and this is the long game. This is a much longer, much harder route than it would have been to say, you know what, we're going to cater to this one group of people, we're going to sell them information, products, and courses, and we're going to build it this way. Yeah, that probably might have been more profitable in the short term, but I wasn't interested in something that was going to allow me to make as much money as possible in the shortest amount of time and to be done with it. I wanted to do something that I would get to do for the rest of my life and remain timeless. Mm. Okay, so that's the basis for the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, and you do the rebrand. And I do remember very clearly the artwork that came with that rebranding was really unique. So that was yeah. a, a nice touch. Take us forward. What happens? You start, you interview bank robbers. All this happens. I'm assuming you you kind of get yeah. a, a new audience. And, and so you know what what happens is that in 2014 we rebranded as Unmistakable Creative. I put on a, a 60 person two day conference called the Instigator Experience because I'm sick of going to conferences where everybody just sits in hotel ballrooms all day waiting for a happy hour to start. So I create my own conference, the one that I've always wanted to go to. You know, we get to the end of 2014, which ends up being kind of a really rough year. Personally, even through all of this, you know, the struggle is okay, how do you make this lucrative? How do you make it profitable? And, you know, so we have sponsors, they come and go and, and they're inconsistent. But, you know, again, you know, I found myself back at my parents and I was in a pretty deep state of depression and things were not going well. And we're sitting down looking at the bank account because I think the thing that happens, so prior to the rebrand, I had ended up self-publishing this book that became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. I went from lingering in obscurity to suddenly being in the limelight like never before. I was feeling like, okay, finally I have earned you know, I've gotten the result that I've been driving towards for so long, the thing that I've been trying to accomplish. And so the problem is when you go from an extreme high to an extreme low, it can really derail you. So I'm back at my parents' house and probably a month or two after I got back, then also, you know, throughout this process, I developed a habit of writing a thousand words a day. Mm. And an I remember you writing about that, yeah. Because you're quite prolific on Facebook. I remember you were... Yeah, I'm prolific in general, you know. <laughs> yeah, so that happens and then an editor at Penguin found something that I wrote on Medium and next thing I know, we're talking about a book deal and then that basically ends up being we get to a book deal, I think that was sometime in April of 2015 we signed a book deal and then I got to work on a manuscript and what's come from that are speaking opportunities, the opportunity to write books. And you know, we're still growing the platform. We're still working. I mean, in my mind, we're still just a startup, as much of a startup as we were, you know, when I started this in 2009. I think the thing that's changed is that for me, what matters now is that there's a commitment to mastery. Like I, yes, would I like it if you know tens of thousands of people are listening? Which you know, we have a decent sized audience. We're not as big as Pat Flynn. We're not as big as Lewis House, but I don't. I'm not looking to compete with them. I am looking to create you know what I want to see exist in the world. And to me, I think the the commitment. 
has always been to, at this point, it's really about mastery to the craft of interviewing itself mm. more than anything else. I want, and you know, if you look at our iTunes reviews, what you'll see is in close to 10 years, we've never gotten anything other than maybe two or three reviews that weren't five stars. And none of them were the result of participating in exchanges for reviews. Every one of those reviews has been organic. Our growth has largely been organic. And, and I think, you know, it's in the last two years or so that we've become much more deliberate about growing. Mm. Yeah, you really live, I think, what you are covering as a podcaster, you know, being a, an unmistakable creative, you sort of sounds like you've spent, I would say 10 years, but it's probably a lifetime playing with your creativity and realizing clearly that you're not meant for a career and a job and then trying to translate your creativity to a way to function in society and also to get, yeah. you know, enjoyment and financial, you know, security from all of this. And I love the fact how you said, yeah, you finally reached a point where all of probably decades of this work of sharing creativity got you into the limelight. Sounds like through book publishing in particular, obviously mm -hmm. you don't get book publishing without being prolific everywhere else. Like you said, podcasting, social media, so on, medium. Take us just through this book deal part. Cause I am kind of curious. How that goes down, especially, you know, in, in your case, because you obviously already know what it's like to self-publish a book mm -hmm. and then you get this opportunity to traditional publish and, and get a deal from it. And then obviously that's a, an extension of this brand you built with the unmistakable creative and you're trying to be true to your mission there. How yeah. does that all connect um, to, with the book deal? Well, you know, traditional publishing is, is really interesting because I think that when I took your course, the sort of unicorn or the metaphorical mountaintop of the blogging world was the book deal. That was the sort of, oh, okay, that means you've arrived, which that in and of itself is nonsense. You kind of realize very quickly after you get a book deal because then you start to see around you and you're like, oh, there are thousands of other people who get book deals. Now, I'm not saying that you know this happens to everybody. So a couple of different things. One, I think the success of my self-published book had a big impact. So part of the reason that I self-published the book was because I felt that I was not going to be given the opportunity for a book deal. I felt that nobody was coming to knock on my door. I had spent years telling everybody else's stories of people who had gotten book deals. And, you know, one of the things that is really required, I believe, to build a career in the arts, and I was just talking to another author who's spent decades writing books for a living long before blogging and social media came along, is patience. And, you know, you have a world in which you can get instant feedback, instant attention, and instant validation because of social media through likes and comments and shares. But what you don't realize is that that's not really where the work happens. I mean, many of these stories are years and years in the making. So I was really late to getting a book deal. It wasn't for a lack of trying, but I saw in that time, I saw a lot of things. I saw people accept really low advances with shitty publishers who did absolutely nothing to support their books. And most of them have not written a book since. So that's one thing that became very apparent to me. I talked to a, a writing, uh, somebody who basically helps authors get book deals, I think sometime in 2012, and she said, you're not ready. And I was offended at the time and I, I was kind of disappointed, but she did me a huge favor because it gave me another two years to work on my craft. I had a two years to develop the habits, the rituals, the routines, the systems. So what ended up happening was that that self-published book got the attention of an editor at Penguin, and she said, we want to talk about a book. So originally, they were going to buy the self-published book and have me expand and revise it. But instead, what ended up happening was I just wrote a whole new book from scratch in six months, and then I just finished the one that I, I've just finished now. And part of the reason you and I are talking is because of, of that. I think that having patience allows you to develop the skills that are necessary to create something that you'll be proud of. I don't think it wouldn't have been impossible to get a, a book deal back in 2012. I had a, a decently sizable platform. 
I don't think it would have been a good book. I don't think it would have sold a lot of copies. And I think I would have made a compromise that probably would have basically been the end of my, my writing books. And I think that what I've seen is the people who have long-term careers doing this, they have a long-term perspective on it. And that's a hard thing to do in a world that moves so fast. Mm. Tell us about this new book then. Yeah, so the new book is called An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. So this really flies in the face of a lot of conventional wisdom. And it's interesting because you and I are talking and, and a lot of your work and, and even your course was about teaching us how to build an audience for something that we've created. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with building an audience, as especially as somebody who has done it. So it's a strange place to be making the argument from. But one of the things that has become very apparent to me, and I've witnessed this over you know 700 plus interviews with virtually every creator you could possibly think of from all walks of life, is that the sort of wildly successful, the ones that have become Oh, yeah, pretty much icons in, in popular culture, creative projects from the internet, ranging from Humans of New York to uh, Brain Pickings to Post Secret, which was created by Frank Warren. What's interesting is none of these people started out with the intention of, hey, I'm going to monetize this thing. I'm going to build an audience around this. They had a desire to express their creativity in some way, and so they just did it. And the interesting thing, of course, is that they're all wildly successful. And if you ask many of them about this, they'll say that the external rewards, the fulfillment that comes from external rewards is not lasting. It really doesn't last very long. You know, you get a book deal, you're on cloud nine for two weeks and then life goes back to normal. And so the argument that really I wanted to establish in an audience of one was that there is great joy to doing creative work, even if the only person you're doing it for is yourself. And the fact that you're doing it for yourself on a regular basis, paradoxically, is much more likely to lead to an audience of millions mm. because of the fact that you are committing to your craft. You're putting in the work that's necessary. But it's not just a sort of inspirational book about art. It's also very practical. We've put in a lot of exercises. We've used principles from behavioral and social science to teach people how to develop the habits that are necessary to sustain an ongoing, lifelong creative practice. The way you describe that idea of focusing on your own creativity for your own sake and therefore giving yourself a better chance to build a large audience kind of reminds me of, hoping not offended, but copywriting advice where they say to write to the one person and then you actually do a better job of writing to many because everyone wants to hear, you know, the message to them. It is interesting how that seems to play out all the time. It's like when you're doing something for a purpose that's not just I want to you know reach a lot of people or I want to make a lot of money but if it's yeah. I want to do this for the sake of doing it generally it gives you a better chance to reach a lot of people and make a lot of money as a, a byproduct of that it's so, the ultimate paradox right yeah. it's really ironic but throughout history that has proven to be true you know, for people from Daft Punk to Oprah Winfrey. Mm. Yeah. What would you say to people who, and we'll call this one of our wrap-up questions here, Srini, people who love your, that message and they're like, I love that. My challenge is I'm not entirely sure what that creativity is yet. Yeah. I haven't got that juice flowing. What sure. do you say to them? Well, I think that this is something that I was really fortunate to discover and then you find social science to back up my experience. So it turns out that we have this 
narrative about passion that's completely backwards. Uh, Cal Newport wrote an amazing book about this called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And we really put the cart before the horse when it comes to passion. So for people who are feeling that, the thing that I always say is explore, experiment. Because here's the thing. I couldn't have told you that, hey, I was passionate about conducting interviews. In a million years, I would have never guessed that. I think that what I discovered was that I found this process engaging and when you start to pay attention, and I even wrote a piece on Medium about this uh, very recently as my latest piece about, you know, don't follow your passion, pay attention to what it is you find engaging. And when I looked back at my life, something became very clear to me. I was most engaged in whatever I was doing anytime I was using technology to express my creativity in some form, whether that was making a slideshow for the Indian Student Club at Berkeley and setting it to music or uploading stupid videos to YouTube or writing newsletters to my friends about my ridiculous drunken antics in San Francisco. All those things were incredibly engaging, and somehow they all kind of connected into this thing. And you can find that even in the midst of a day job. There are probably aspects of something that you do every day that make it feel like time is flying. And then there are aspects of, of what you do every day where it makes it feel like time can't go fast enough. And you really do have to think about both of those things in this process. What happens, in, and this is, I'm going way back in time for myself here. I remember I used to live in a share house, and I had a housemate who was a very creative individual, but I noticed most of his creativity was around, well, this wasn't his creativity, I guess, but it was an aspect of it. He consumed more than he created, right? Yep. And that, to me, I always thought, it's great that you have all these passions for shows that you watch. And But how is this ever going to lead to something that you know impacts other human beings if you're just consuming the creative work of others and not creating a work for the world? Yeah, that's a tough place to kind of, I think, for a lot of people to reach, you know, that idea that I'm engaged, but I'm engaged with other people's work and playing with things that aren't external to me. You know, do you think it's a case of actually just realizing, you know, ultimately, if you do want to have an impact on the planet or really find meaning with what you're doing, there has to be a switch from consuming to creating. Would you say that's fair to say? Or I think that, that that is fair to say, and I think it's an appropriate conversation for the world that we live in today because of the fact that we are drowning in a, a sea of information that we can consume. That inevitably puts us in this position. And I think really more than anything, it's a balancing act because you do have to consume great work to create great work. It's inevitable that you are the byproduct of the things that you consume. We're all influenced by other people. I always have felt that people who try to, to write without reading is, in my mind, is a bit like trying to cook without any ingredients. I think that you have to prime your brain in some way. It's just that for many people, the balance is out of whack. They do far more consuming than they do creating. And, and as a result, the, their creativity suffers. I think it's about deliberate consumption choices as well as minimizing your consumption. If you're deliberate about your consumption, inevitably it will become minimized. Good advice. It sounds like if anyone is listening to this, they're obviously loving this topic of creativity and they'll love what you're talking about in your new book. So can you direct us to everything Srini so we know where to find all of this? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is available on Amazon and pretty much anywhere else that sells books. We have a bunch of cool pre-order bonuses that we've put together, which you can find at unmistakablecreative.com slash audience. And if you're interested in the podcast, it's available on iTunes. It's just unmistakable creative and it's a rabbit hole that runs deep with all sorts of weird and interesting people. I will definitely link to all of those resources so you guys can find it at the show notes with this episode. Srini, it was a quite a journey. I'm, I feel like we're still catching maybe only, you know, partway through though. There's a lot to come still because it, it feels like you're now stepping <laughs> into your 
your your zone of genius in some ways that will include very much a light shining on you and, and you don't know where that's going to go next necessarily, right? No, no, not at all. And I think that's that's a really appropriate way to describe it. I think there's, yeah, we're still, we've still got a long way to go. Okay, well, we'll do a part two podcast in another decade and then we'll find out where, what the outcome <laughs> was, okay? Sounds like a plan. Hopefully I'm still doing podcasts in 10 years as well. So awesome. Well, I'm glad to have played, I feel like a, a point. I don't know if it was like a major point, but it was certainly felt like it was a, a turning point, I guess, in, in the way you had directed your life so far. So I really am you know, grateful for that. And you know, just keep up the good work. I think it's actually quite brave to do something where your financial security isn't guaranteed. And that's something that, you know, and you put creativity before money, which in our society, you know, it's a difficult thing to do. So I think you're brave on many levels to do that. But I obviously wish you a great financial rewards for your work too, because I think that is something everyone who's creative, especially who focuses on putting out the creativity, it should be rewarded with. So yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Any other uh, final words before we hit the, the stop button on this one? Uh, no, uh, you know, you can find me at unmistakable creative and, uh, feel free to, you know, either tweet me at unmistakable CEO or uh, shoot me an email and I'm happy to answer any questions people have. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, this is Yarrow again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Recently, I published a blog post and a podcast explaining how I haven't handled my own email in over 12 years. Now, after I released that content, I've had people come up to me going, what do you mean? How have you not handled your email? What, what, do you, what is that? How do you do that? Now, I've been a person who very early on realized that email is a huge time suck. Like you probably are now, I used to deal with all my emails email myself. I think most people on the planet still do that. Their email inbox is something they see as their own. They have to deal with it. I learned that that inbox, my email inbox, is the biggest productivity killer time suck. Not to mention it goes completely against my goal for the laptop lifestyle. If I want the freedom to travel to run my business anywhere, I can't be checking my email four or five, six times a day worrying about, you know, customer complaints or new jobs coming in. And that's what I used to do until about 12 years ago, I hired my first ever inbox manager. And that was a person who became absolutely vital to not just my business, but my life. It significantly reduced my stress. Because I think like most people, you're, you're probably getting up early in the morning and handling your email then and possibly spending one or two or even three hours. Your entire morning can be wiped out. Just replying to messages doesn't move your life forward. It doesn't move your business forward. It's kind of like busy work. Or maybe you're coming home at night to the big pile of emails and you've got potential customer queries you've got clients who are asking for things. These are important messages and you end up losing your entire evening when you'd rather be relaxing, spending time with friends or family or even watching Netflix, you know, whatever it is you want to do. But you've got this big pile of email that you know is not going to get smaller unless you go and deal with it. You know, the next day there'll be more emails coming in and the next day there's more emails coming in. So for me, I made sure that once I got rid of it, I never had to deal with it again. So I've had either one or two or even three people handling my inbox specialists for over 12 years now. And I'm very excited to announce as a special new sponsor of this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to InboxDone.com, which is a brand new service essentially offering what I'm talking about here, a dedicated email inbox manager that can become part of your team and really take over what is 
very likely the single biggest stress point time suck productivity killer in your business and your life, no matter what you're doing. So this person can do as much or as little as you like. They can potentially just come in and come up with some systems, some automatic replies, some templates, and they can just be there clearing your inbox, sorting things for you so you don't have to deal with it yourself. And you know, you don't have that scattered feeling when you look at your email or email can be taken off your plate completely. So your dedicated inbox manager will deal with every message that comes into your inbox and also set up some really intelligent systems for doing things that maybe you don't do right now or maybe you, you kind of do. For example, do you have some kind of process for following up with potential customers? So people who show interest at buying your products or services, maybe just email in a question. Do you have a intelligently designed process for chasing them up over a period of weeks with several emails? And you know, are you doing that yourself right now? Well, imagine you've got someone who handles that. It's scheduled. It's part of their job to make sure that goes out in a strategic way. The same goes for dealing with potential cancellations or refunds. So if you have a membership site now or payment plans, this person could come up with a, a system for strategically handling those kind of queries to, to reduce your cancellation and refund rate. These are just a couple of ways you can actually increase your profits or reduce your losses with a really tailored, dedicated inbox manager. And this is actually, in fact, what we have in my business uh, right now, my information product business with uh, my blog and my podcast and all my teaching products. So if all of this sounds interesting to you, if you'd like to learn more about the service, go to inboxdone.com and you can find an application form there to apply to get your own dedicated inbox manager as well. Just a word of warning though, because of the personalized nature of this service, they can only take on a few clients each month because you do get your own dedicated inbox manager. So that person is specially trained and that takes time. So they have a limit to the number of people they can take on board each month and really it goes to the best applicant. So do a great job applying. And obviously, if you're a great fit for the service, you will get your own dedicated inbox manager and email could be taken completely out of your life. And you'll be able to experience what I've experienced for a long time now, that sense of freedom, relaxation, the, the idea that you, you, know, you don't have to stress about this anymore. You don't have to worry about those emails sitting in your inbox. Not only that, you don't have to worry about whether you're doing a good enough job replying to those emails because you could be losing sales right now just because you're not chasing up in an intelligent way. So I encourage you to go check out inboxdone.com. I really recommend their services. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast, the original entrepreneur interview podcast established in 2005. For more episodes, head over to ejpodcast.com. See you next time.